we have our whole life ahead of us. And I don't want to be controlled by the clinical world. I don't want to have to be chained to a doctor. I don't want to have to be chained to medication. CPR. It's what happens after someone dies as a last-ditch, high-intensity effort. Unlike the movies, it usually fails. What if we used that drive, while we're still alive, to heal ourselves? Welcome to CPR for Life, where we help you understand how to reclaim your health by changing your everyday life. I'm Dr. Sagar Doshi, board certified in both lifestyle and emergency medicine, and certified health coach. Our health is like a vehicle. I've seen too many people, including my own family, crash their health because they don't realize they are the ones driving. This podcast aims to help each of us take the wheel and learn where to go. But even though these conversations are evidence-based, they are just for your education. So please talk with your physician before making changes. Welcome, everybody. Today with me, we have a wonderfully interesting and knowledgeable guest. Her name is Heather Borders. She's a culinary dietitian and the founder of Kylo Nutrition, a culinary nutrition practice in Florida. Her focus is on chronic diseases such as diabetes, heart disease, and autoimmune disease. She became a food for life instructor with PCRM, which is the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and has a certificate in plant-based cooking from Rue. And she's also done the plant-based nutrition course from E. Cornell. She's collaborated with Dr. Michael Clapper with the Moving Medicine Forward Initiative. And starting in 2023, she's helping with building the nutrition curriculum for a new lifestyle medicine program in Texas called New Me Health. So in addition to her degree in nutrition, she has degrees in aerospace engineering, mechanical engineering, and business. So you have an unusual entry into healthcare. I see on your website, there's a picture of you floating in an airplane, in a zero-G plane. Tell me how you made your way from the engineering world, even into the engineering world, and now are a plant-based nutritionist. Yes. Thank you again for having me. Basically, I fell in love with space science. I was really young. I, I remember the, the Challenger accident. I was watching it in school. And I just, I love, I, it, it's kind of perverse, but that really got me started. I really was very fascinated with the space shuttle program. And I went to space camp every year from seventh grade to 12th grade. And I did awesome. like every program they had at Huntsville, Alabama. And um, I just knew you know, as soon as I understood what college was and you know, how it worked, I knew I was going to major in aerospace engineering. And I had my eyes set on working for NASA. I didn't know what I was going to do, but um, I knew that that was the direction. So I, I just loved it. And I thought, I just think, I still think space science is the coolest thing ever. And I love watching video and footage from space and looking back at Earth and rockets and things like that. So I graduated from Auburn University with my degree in aerospace engineering, and I made my way to Johnson Space Center in Houston. And I was just one of those incredibly fortunate souls to get a position in what they call Mission Operations Directorate. And I was part of the crew training team. Uh, and so that is NASA speak for uh, astronaut trainers. So 22-year-old engineering majors are training your astronauts, and it is quite possibly wow. the coolest job ever. And, um, yeah. and so I landed in the electrical and thermal 
uh, systems department. So that's what I train. And I was assigned to the International Space Station astronauts at that time. It was divided into shuttle and ISS. And so I was ISS trainer, um, specific to electrical and thermal systems. So you show up to the Johnson Space Center and they put you into NASA school and you learn what you're about to teach. So it's a train the trainer program. And you learn about the systems on the space station and you, and then you get further training on what you need to know so that you can train the new astronauts coming in. And then I did that actually only for about a year and change. And then I switched. Um, I found this group that focused on the health side and the medical side of, of training for the crew members. And I switched over to what was called the countermeasure systems instructor. So I got to train the astronauts on the exercise hardware that they used and how to uh -huh. use it and how to fix it when it broke, how not to break it and then how to fix it when they did break <laughs> it. Um, yeah. Step one, don't break it. Step two, after we know yeah, you're going to break it. This is how you fix it. <laughs> and that was an introduction to space medicine. So my introduction to life sciences came from how the body responded to space flight. And that... I was hooked. I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. I really thought it was very unique and just cool how your, your spine kind of grows and you have headaches and you might get nauseated and how your blood shifts and your fluid shifts and the, the bone loss that you get from extended time in space. Because again, the ISS crew members spend six months up there, whereas shuttles, you know, they might spend 10 to 21 days up there. It's totally different. That was, that was kind of my introduction to being interested in life sciences where I'd never really been interested in that before. And that got me started you know, down the path of wanting to learn more about well, how does the body work on earth. And, uh, and so at that time, which I was there from 2000 to 2005, uh, with every new administration, you get a new NASA administrator. And it's, I don't know, I always felt it was like getting a new CEO every four or eight years and they were changing. You, you might be on a program that gets cut because the new administrator and administration doesn't want to do that. And I survived several layoffs, well, not just layoffs, but just program cancellations. And I just thought, oh, wow. again, at that time, there was no Elon and there was no Sir Richard Branson. You know, where else can I train astronauts? This is, I felt very mm -hmm. limited, actually. And I just said, well, I want to go back to school and I want to get a business degree and I want to learn about biomedical engineering. I thought, well, it's still life sciences, still it's engineering. And, and that's kind of where I was in Houston. So I went to Rice and I did the dual degree program where it was a master's of engineering and a master's of business. And you just do it at the same time. And so um, at the time I Tech, my degree is technically in mechanical engineering, but I took all biomedical engineering classes. And um, so, so that at that time, my eyes were set on medical devices. So now I was kind of just redirecting. Okay. So I moved from Houston to Jacksonville, Florida to work for a large medical device company called Medtronic. And it was the ear, nose, throat division. So, yeah. Okay. I didn't even know that went that high. I really just know Medtronic yeah. from the heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pacers, defibrillators. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so it was great. Uh, it was kind of intense, actually. Now I felt like it was science. Um, there was this an undercurrent 
It was very sciencey, but at the same time, it was really just a business job. It was a marketing job. And so um, hmm. that, that was kind of my introduction to, to business. It was product manager role. So I managed the product. I, I was managing all things tonsils and adenoids. <laughs> so all of their, okay. their device. That's really close to the yeah. mouth, though. So yeah. I see where this is yeah. going. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's actually a good point. Uh, in, in my world at that time, the big question was, or, or desire, I guess you could say, was how do we decrease the pain from a tonsillectomy? Because if you look at across the board, how much pain a tonsillectomy causes, it's right up there with childbirth. And I've actually talked to women who's given birth and like, I'll go through birth before I go through a tonsillectomy again. And so it's really painful, especially if you're an adult. Now, most cases are with kids, but um, even with kids, it's horrible. It's a very painful procedure. And uh, and so it was all about which device is going to cause less thermal damage and which device is going to harm the nerves less. And on recovery from say six days to three days that, I mean, it was literally that that's what we were doing. And when you look at the data uh, in, in past, I'd say 30, 40 years ago, most people got a tonsillectomy due to strep throat. But if you look nowadays, it's usually because of obstructive sleep apnea. And I always felt like, why isn't anybody asking why that happened? And why are we, bothering with trying to decrease pain from six days to three days, why don't we start asking ourselves, do we need to do this procedure? Yeah. Go a little you know, further back. And it, it started to really resonate with me. And this, to be fair, this was after I had found a plant-based diet, I'd found the plant-based diet in the middle of my time there. And that was what really made me start to feel a little more interested in nutrition and preventative well health and wellness and, and started me ask. It's just I started asking questions, and no one's really at that time in the circles that I was in was really trying to decrease the number of procedures. They were just trying to decrease the amount of pain from the procedure, and I felt yeah, they yeah, were very backwards. So, how did you discover that plant based so diet? My husband and I met in in college, nineteen ninety nine, and. Um, I haven't known him to have low cholesterol. (laughs) Um, So throughout our twenties, it was, it was not even kind of high. It was two fifties and above through our twenties. Oh, wow. And in the beginning, we didn't really do anything about it because you're young and dumb. And then it just kept getting higher and higher and higher. And it would bounce around two thirties, two fifty, two seventy, two eighty. And finally we just kind of said, okay, I, I don't even remember when, but at some point we started to pretend to care and um, <laughs> I think we tried to eat well and exercise and, and what did that mean yeah, for you? At, I was going to say, time. I think it meant no obvious junk food and possibly focusing on the chicken and fish. Right. So, um, a lot of lean meat and we we're total Americans and we we're totally young. We were eating out a lot. So I think we tried to not eat out as much, but I really feel like it was, it was not a very deliberate, thoughtful strategy. It was like, okay, we're just going to say we're. Yeah. I'd say that's a very common. Yeah. People can identify with that. I would say. So (laughs) at, when I was at Medtronic and this was about 2011, we had one of those biometric screenings and my husband's cholesterol was the first time it had gone over 300. So it was 311. 
and his triglycerides were 305. And mm. at this point, I think I was 33, he was 34. And I remember thinking, okay, I know we're not old, but we're not 20. And mm -hmm. I think that's when you start paying attention to watching your genes play out in front of you. And he had some heart disease, pretty serious heart disease in his family. And to the point where we, we, we kind of took it more seriously. And I think that he had gone because he had gone to the doctor and his obese doctor told him to go on medications and for whatever reason, my husband from the very beginning was like, no. And I remember thinking, what do you mean? No, <laughs> it's kind of like, you probably should go to medicine. And he's like, absolutely not. He just wouldn't do it. I don't even think he had it. Did he share I with you his say, concerns? I don't or? even think I know if he had a good reason or, I, or behind it. He just was, <laughs> no, I'm not interested in medication. And, uh, and so we, it was a conversation where I was like, well, engineer, problem solver that I like to think I was at the time. I, I was, well, this is not okay. And, uh, and so I just went online. It was 2011 and I went online and I just started looking like for ways to decrease cholesterol, not using medication, just that kind of dumb you know, process. Help yeah. me out, Google. And, yeah. um, and uh, it was great timing because uh, I think the first, what I came across was all the greats. So you have Dr. Colin Campbell, you have Dr. Esselstyn. Um, and I think those were the first books I read. Uh, I came across Rip Esselstyn's 28 day, like engine two diet or something like that. And I remember ordering the books and reading them and just handing them off to my husband as I'm reading them. And uh, he's a voracious reader. Uh, and uh, I just remember being well, you don't want to take medicine. It seems to work for these folks. <laughs> You know, what do you think? Yeah. And I don't, I, I think this is really, uh, I don't know. I, I was, it's amazing how some people can't even fathom going plant-based for one day. Uh, for us, it was like, well, let's just try it. Let's see. We don't have to do, we don't have to finish it if we don't like it. Let's just see. Right. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think his response was whatever, just cook for me. Like, I don't care. <laughs> Whatever winds up on my plate, that's what I'm eating. <laughs> and, and so became our, our N of two experiment. And I think I love the experiment idea more than anything else. And I thought, oh, this is really cool. I like numbers and we can, mm -hmm. this won't be subject. Like we're going to see things change and or not. And uh, so to be fair, a lot of people, there's a lot of people who talk about how easy it is. And I think that's just not true. I, it was hard. We're very American and. I can't say I was a, a particularly bad cook or good cook. I just followed recipes and um, it, it was hard. I think I went to the store every day for seven days. And I remember thinking there's no way anybody could do this if they had kids or I had a very a demanding job, but it was very flexible. So I can mm. plan um, my life how I needed to. And I just remember thinking if anybody had any other responsibilities or a rigid job, I can't, I really just don't know how, because it, it took a lot of time. And, but it was a very concentrated focused experiment. And I was very serious about sticking to you know, whole foods, plant-based. And, um, I think I was trying to go no oil too. I don't know if I stuck to that, but I think that was the attempt. And so 
it took about six weeks for us to get back to the doctor and get tested. And his cholesterol went from 311 to about 230. That's some significant is. progress. And his triglycerides dropped from 305 to 105. It dropped 200 points. Dang. And he dropped about 15 pounds. And the truth is, is we're very thin. Um, nobody would have said he needed to lose weight. Um, but it looked pretty good. He had a jaw. He, he had a jaw. <laughs> you could see his jaw. It was, it was nice. And I can't say it was easy, but I remember being like, well, this worked. And it's not, 2.30 is not in line yet, but it's only six mm-hmm. weeks. <laughs> and we weren't even exercising because, again, I was trying to figure out what on earth to put on our plate. Uh, yeah. It was new. I, I had never cooked like this before. Yeah. So that kind of set things off. And uh, it really appealed to your engineering background to run that it, experiment and get the reinforcing yeah. results. And so, you know, the the interesting thing was, is that my blood test originally when his when we got his when we got ours together, mine was actually 200 and I think 20 or 230. It was the first time mine had been over 200. And so mm, I was really excited to see mine drop and mine only dropped 10 points. I was so mad. And uh, huh. you guys are eating stuff. the same stuff, same stuff. And mine did not drop very fast. And the, the summary of how this played out, I would say is that it took about two years for my cholesterol to get like where it kind of stabilized, which is around 150 to 175. But it took a while. It was five points, 10 points, like every three to six months we test. And it took a good year and a half, two years to get it under 200 um, consistently. And and I was mm. 100%. So um, I think that. But you I stuck with it. Because I liked the food. And I. And, <laughs> Yeah, I'm a science girl. And the more I learned about the science, the more it just made sense. And furthermore, I think there's a chapter in the China study, and there's other literature about this, but why have I heard about this before? And you start learning about the government and the money and the food, big food, and you start all that. And for health reasons, it's kind of an arbitrary line, but I would say 80, 90% of why I'm a hundred percent is due to health. That's really why I'm here. Um, and then the rest is sort of made up in this, you know, animal ethics, environmental health, but I'd say a huge, the, the rest of it is really made up into, I'm not going to be anybody's victim. Like I am not, it really angers me to think that people are you know, that organizations and individuals are really trying to make money off of um, people being just sick enough, not dead, mm-hmm. just sick enough. Yeah. So, so yeah. you know, it's kind of a, a middle finger to that, that whole world there. So, yeah. 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 Screw them. Yeah. You're going to be healthy. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I would say just a, a kind of how to wrap that it's 2011, so we're going, this will be our 12th year now. And what I think is really interesting is my husband, for the most part, has stayed 
plant-based. I would say maybe at various times in his life, he dropped 90% or something like that, but for the most part, plant-based. And unfortunately, his, his cholesterol never went further than like 220. And I was getting really angry. And, and then on top of that, sometimes it'd still pop up to 250, 260. It never got really hot, much higher than that. But I was, uh, I was so mad. And I, by that time, I had learned about the CRP and the homocysteine, and those were in line. And I would hear certain things about how if he's eating plant-based, if he's active, and his inflammatory markers are in line, he should be fine. But it always bugged me. Um, mm-hmm. And in 2020, it was either 20 or 21 in January, he decided alcohol was not serving him anymore. And he went from give or take two to three beers a night, one, one to three beers a night, if that, if at all. But I would say, truthfully, anywhere from 10 to 21 beers in a week is probably what he was, he was drinking. And he just went away. And he just stopped. And he happened to have... That is a lot. <laughs> when, you add, when you say one to two beers a week or one to two beers a day, it doesn't sound like a big deal. But when you talk about seven to 14 beers a week, that's actually pretty meaningful. So mm-hmm. much less if you have any more. So, um, and this is the first time he's ever done anything like this. And so that was January. We're going to say 2021, I think is when it was. And I would say five weeks later, it was around his birthday in March when his company had a biometric screening and he took um, you know, a test there and it was 179. I've never Boom. seen it that low. And so, and I, I forgive me, I don't remember what his LDL was, but it was perfect. It was a hundred. It was in line and um, five weeks. It was five weeks from the time he dropped it. And it's been a year. I think his cholesterol is lower than mine now. I think it's 140. Is it a competition? No, I'm so, I just, (laughs) even as a dietitian, and you would think it was his triglycerides that went down with that, but it, it, they went down, but like five, 10 points, 15 points. It was his LDL that dropped like 60 points. And even as a dietitian, I'm kind of struggling to understand what's going on there. Um, But I think that it's just nature of his genes. And that's where we have very unique variabilities between us because as a dietitian i've seen people stop alcohol and it does nothing it doesn't affect their labs it doesn't affect their weight it doesn't it just doesn't but with my husband and his genes it 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 does so you bring up a really good point that you know, genetics is not uh, mm-hmm. concrete right it's just it's a it's, it's a, an influence it's fluid. but <laughs> yeah and that could, you also mentioned that he was seeing his uh, genetics play out in front of him. And so that was one of the reasons he wanted to do mm-hmm. something else. But it's, for a lot of people, they wouldn't even gone that far. But your guys' commitment really showed how much control a person can have. It, and I think that for us, it's empowering. It's nice to know. But at that point, we're still young. We're 30. It doesn't feel, I don't know what it's like to be 60 or 70, but I have a feeling you, know, you get to this point where you are nearing where you're in that other half of your life. You're, you're, <laughs> you have less than half your life left, right? And I don't mm-hmm. know what that's like, but for us, it's like we have our whole life ahead of us. And <clears throat> I don't want to be controlled by the 
the clinical world. I don't want to have to be chained to a doctor. I don't want to have to be chained to medication. And I don't, we shouldn't need medication to make it to our next decade of life at, at 30. So, yeah. I mean, the average 30 year olds are on three meds by the time you hit your that's 30s. That's crazy. three meds. Yeah. Typical. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that it was very empowering, this idea that we can influence the trajectory of our life just by food. And um, I think it's really unfortunate that a lot of people see this plant-based diet as limiting. Uh, I think I eat more variety of foods. I know I do eat more variety of foods now than I ever did when I wasn't plant-based. Yeah, and you mentioned that before the show, we were talking about how you're getting ready to travel without any restrictions in your super cool sounding <laughs> sprinter van. But imagine if you guys had multiple medications, doctor's appointments, procedures, et cetera, et cetera. You wouldn't be able to go no. do that stuff. You'd always have to come back to home base yeah. every yep. few weeks. So that's limiting. So now in that context with all that, the question I like mm-hmm. to ask everybody is, what is your definition of health? Ooh, I love that. Uh, I would say my definition of health is just living without those restrictions and living, being able to choose what you want to do and the way you want to do them and, and do it freely Um, and maximizing your potential. Living up to everything you could do and having the freedom. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing. Freedom. Freedom. Yeah. We, we, we kind of gave our, our little van mission, a, a name, and we called it Freedom 45. And it was, oh, yeah, <laughs> he's 45. Now I'm about to be 45. And so the idea of living, it's kind of being overused now, but your authentic self and trying to find true happiness. And um, we just said, decided we wanted to break ourselves down to build ourselves up. And it was around this age of 45 that was we knew it was going to happen. So we called it Freedom 45. There's mm-hmm. a lot to a name. Every Mm -hmm. time you say it, especially when you're entering that second half of life, as you you mentioned. um, Shameless plug for what I hope to be our Instagram, you know, for the trip, but it's in line and our last names are borders and and our handle is borders without borders. Nice way to take that business background (laughs) and that marketing and just make it work. So, yeah, I mean, health has to have something where you're, you're not limited. You're free to do what you want and um, what makes you happy. Mm-hmm. Perfect. All right. Let's get a little bit more into plant-based diets and how it affects mm-hmm. heart health. But I do have a question. When you're in your nutrition training, how was the education around plant-based diets? Because I know in medical school, eh, not there, right? We, If we're going to learn about nutrition, typically um, before a certain year, you're going to have to go do it on your own. But what is it like when you're actually a nutritionist going through that degree program? I'd say exactly the same. <laughs> okay, go on. So the way, and again, I can't speak for all nutrition programs. I went to the University of North Florida. I'm very happy with my education and the, the program there. And um, But I think it is just the nature of what a nutrition curriculum, the curriculum looks like for nutrition and dietetics. And you know, you're going to get your basic science, and then you're going to tar- start taking things like bioorganic chemistry, and then you're going to probably get some kind of food class or food science class. And that was how I started because I was going back to school. So I didn't have to take a lot of the under 
for the underclassmen types classes. I had taken a lot of them anyway. Um, and I remember I had a very accommodating professor and she respected the fact that I was plant-based and all the assignments that had dairy or egg in it, I was allowed to be creative and do something else. So that was very helpful because I know that there are students across the country who do not have that ability. And worse yet, um, I think some people, some professors even try to say that you have to eat it, much less make it. So, um, you know, the student has to take a hit if they don't wow. want to eat it. But yeah. my professor was amazing. And I was learning alongside. And I think it's important to learn the food science of, of animal protein and and. Um, and the col- even the culinary components, I don't have any issue with that. I think it's good to stay that, you know, keep that well-balanced, well-rounded education. Uh, from there, I feel your, your main nutrition classes um, that I think really matter are going to be your advanced nutrition science. So that's going to be your metabolism, your medical nutrition therapy. So that's how you literally use nutrition to address disease states. And then things like counseling which I think probably I would argue is just as important, if not more important than the science, if you're going to be any kind of outpatient dietitian or you know, counselor. So I can talk about. And by that, you mean how to help people actually do the things you tell the them to do cycle inside and out, but that doesn't really help the person sitting in front of me. That, that no, doesn't help anybody. Doesn't. So, um, you know, if I can't get them to understand to, to go out there and try buy some new food and prepare a new food and eat a new food. It's all for nothing. So counseling is really important. So. Yeah. So tell me if you would about any such person that you've had good success yeah. with or that's made a big impact and in their life. I'm going to double back really quickly and just say much like what you were saying a lot of my plant-based education came from investing in going to conferences specific to plant-based education. And so it was very helpful to go back to class and have some puzzle pieces to give me Mm. a launching point to ask different questions. I think it's very important to get all the data as much as you can so that you can start to see, okay, I got a chapter on vegetarian nutrition and they're really concerned about B12 and protein and all of that. But did you know that 30, 40% of omnivores are also deficient in B12? We vegetarians and vegans may be worse off, but it's not like omnivores are doing that much better. So it's, it's important to have the entire kind of information so that you can start piecing together some meaningful conclusions about what's actually happening. So, yeah. so, so you're doing those training tracks 100%. in parallel. I was still time. working at Medtronic okay. for the first year and a half oh when I was going to school, I started going to school part-time. So fortunately I had, I was working. And so I was able to pay for school. I was able to go to all these conferences across the United States. It was really, it was cool. Um, and it was a lot of fun and I was learning a lot. I was able to, so when obviously I'm not, able to counsel when I was in school. So I was in school from 13 to 16, 2013, 16. So I wasn't able to counsel until then. But um, in terms of a story, just generically, when I, before I became a, a dietitian, I decided to become a food for life instructor and I started doing cooking classes right off the bat. So I became plant-based in 11. I became a food for life instructor in 2012. And that's what really made me want to go back to school because I'm taking what I thought was these dinky cooking classes. You're just 
cooking. You're just you know, whipping up a little quinoa salad and uh-huh. a five week class. And I'd get people genuinely excited and they're like, I lost weight. I really lost weight. My blood pressure's lower. So my glucose is lower. And they were asking questions that I could not answer. <laughs> what kind of question? Oh, Why um, questions? Or? questions. So meditations and, you know, like oh. I'm starting to feel shaky and should I stop my medication? I'm, you need to call your doctor. <laughs> and so I, that was my first entry into realizing how powerful this is because my husband and I were fortunate enough. We were young enough to where it was just bad cholesterol. We didn't have symptoms. We weren't overweight. Mm-hmm. We were doing everything and anything we wanted to do. But you get a group of people in their 50s and 60s, which are most of the people taking the classes, and they have a lot of things going on and they have a lot of symptoms and they're on medications and this works. I mean, that was that was my experience as a food for life instructor was, holy crap, five weeks and someone's really feeling better. And to the point where yeah. some of them were feeling bad because they were on too much meds now. What I now know is too much meds. Yeah. Because overshot. Diet, you you adjust your glucose and your blood pressure. Um, now you feel kind of crappy on those meds. It's not going to work so well. Mm-hmm. So so that was my pre dietitian days of noticing things. Um, once I was a dietitian, um, I think. One, there's a few people that stand out. So I think there's so many cool things about this one patient. He was 78 years old when he came to see me. I was by far the oldest patient. And he had lived a life, a very standard American diet life. And he had himself a little TIA, a little mini stroke. And mm-hmm. it scared him. And it scared him really big. And he had that kind of personality where he's like, I'm going to die. I'm going to make it to the same age as my mother. And she died at 96. So let's nip this in the bud. And at that point, he had had a lot of things going on. His, I think his A1C was over 13. And he wasn't, at, at the time he had had his CIA, he wasn't on any medication for diabetes. So, I mean, it's like he didn't know. And then um, his cholesterol was also nearing 300. Um, his blood pressure was through the roof, 200s kind of thing. Um, it was just bad. Everything was just out of range. And I said, and I am a dietitian who tries to meet people where they're at. It, it isn't about going 100% plant-based, okay? So I'm not going to be – I could probably count on less than five people in the last seven years that I've ever said, you kind of need to – you're flirting here with the next step, the next phase of life, you yeah. know? And um, <laughs> it's up to you the kind of rebel risk you want to take, but I can't imagine that your body's going to give you much more – leash, more leeway. And mm-hmm. he was one of maybe three or four people in my time as a dietitian. And I was like, you need to, you, you need to be a hundred percent and you need to walk that line. And, you know, okay, if you don't, I'll support you if you don't, but I feel negligent if I don't tell you you're, you're flirting with danger here. And um, at 78, you're not 48, you're not even 68, you're 78. There's not much road there for you. <laughs> So I told him, and he, for whatever reason, he listened. And what's cool is he's 78. He's a man. He hasn't been married in years. He doesn't cook at all. And at all. And, and I'm here <laughs> suggesting a revolutionary hard right. And so yeah. 
it was challenging because he he wasn't interested in cooking. I'm like, all right, let's go to the store. We're going to find what we find. And there's good, better, best. And we're going to do our best. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so he agreed to saute and he agreed to boil water. And the rest was packaged food that was as minimally processed as we could find it. So was he SOS free 100%? No. But was he 100% plant-based? Absolutely. And um, mm. and so we we found, we did our best. And, and within three months, his, I want to say his jump from A1C went from over 13 to seven. It was like 7.5. And he never wanted to let me write him up in a, a study, a little case study. Can I please? Can I please? <laughs> he, he thought there was going to be work he had to do. And I tried to tell him, oh. no, just de-identified facts. <laughs> um, but he was never interested in that. His glucose just almost immediately normalized. Within six months, he was considered not diabetic. They told him he needed to go on insulin. And he said he bought this $1,400 worth of insulin, shoved it in the back of the fridge, never touched it. And... Um, wow. And he never went on medicine for diabetes because within three months it was just a little high, and then within six months it was totally reversed. And and same Amazing. thing with his cholesterol. He went down, his cholesterol went down to like ninety two. He I had to convince him that that was not a bad thing that it, there's that he can't get <laughs> that low. Um, that that wasn't bad. And the only thing that stayed high for a little bit, a little stubborn, was his blood pressure, and. We dug into the details and that bugger was still eating some canned, it was a canned beans and rice mixture. And I don't remember the brand, but the amount of sodium in a can was about two or three times what you should eat in a day. And I was like, okay, let's find an alternative. So I found an alternative, (laughs) canned beans and rice in a can, and it was more normal. It was just an it's just beans and rice. And I think there was salt in there, okay. but not even remotely close to that, what he was eating. And it, it normalized, it went down. So, and That's amazing. Um, I mean, there's so many lessons here, right? You can be 78 years old and your body can heal. You just got to give it a platform to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can train an old dog to new tricks. If you really want to do something with your life, you can do it. You just got to want to, and you got to be willing to listen. And, um, and this man barely cooked. That's what's so crazy. This was still Lots with boxed foods and cans. Salt and some hot water. And boiling water. Yep. And mm-hmm. so, sim- I mean, the downside to that, if you, if for some people, is the monotony. He was the kind of person that could eat a lot of things frequently. Some, you could eat the same thing for one or two days, three days in a row. Not, that's not everybody. Like, I would be bored with that. I can't do that. But mm-hmm. some people can, and if you can, it works out really well. Um, you you will cook less, so um, yeah. And yeah, think about absolutely. it less. So kudos yeah. to him, and um, yeah. yeah. So really, really good story with him. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can tell us what is the actual role of diet in the formation of heart disease. What role does nutrition play? Yeah. So. When we eat these foods, we're uh, consuming the fats, carbs, and uh, protein. Let's just back up. You have your heart and you have your vascular system. And so we say heart disease. It's not just the heart, right? It's, it's the freeways that go from your head to your toes, and it's everything. So it's not just one thing. It's, it's your whole body. And for some people, 
cardiovascular disease looks like a stroke and it looks like a heart attack, looks like kidney disease. You know, it's all the same. Yeah, excellent right? point. So mm -hmm. the vessels are, you know, they may be unique to certain areas, but there's a lot of overlap into how the, the physiology of vessels, whether it's in your head or your toe. And, um, and so you eat these foods and you want your blood to be flowing through your, your vessels pretty easily. But when you eat certain foods, specifically these saturated fats, foods with heavy with saturated fats, now this is going to start to affect your vascular system. This is going to affect those, those arteries and um, your, your system that's flowing through your body. And it does that in the way of forming, you kind of get this LDL, that bad cholesterol is what they say. And the fatty foods kind of help with getting LDL into your blood, your actual structure of your, your arteries. And from there, it's like this cascade of steps. And what's ultimately happening is your arteries start, instead of nice vessel artery, you start to get rigidity. And if you think about, say, a hose or a pipe that's maybe a little flexible, the more you flood through it, you better hope that your, you know, your vascular system can kind of expand mm -hmm. a little bit. And if it doesn't, that causes some problems. So we want to be able to adjust for the blood flow. And as your, your vascular system is getting more, um, I would say smaller or more rigid, um, that's going to cause problems down the line. And it just kind of starts off on a cascade from there. So the structure and the function of your arteries are very important with cardiovascular disease um, or cardiovascular health, I should say. Yeah. So how does actually the food, you mentioned right. saturated fat, but how does a food affect our cholesterol and our blood pressure? It's, you touched on the blood pressure a bit mm -hmm. with the, the vessels, our pipes not stretching. Yeah. How does it affect cholesterol? Because we've seen headlines come through that said, hey, cholesterol has nothing to do with cholesterol. <laughs> cholesterol to do and with cholesterol has nothing to do with your yeah. vessels. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does raise your cholesterol. <laughs> and the studies have kind of has shown that over and over again. Things like coconut oil, right? It's 80-something percent saturated fat or more. And um, it, it's just very atherosclerotic it is going to affect your, the saturated fat is going to get into your arteries. Okay. So saturated fat is making the big difference. Tell me more about how fat plays a role in cardiovascular disease and sure. heart disease. So let's talk about, if we, we've already talked, a lot of people think heart disease, you think the heart, but in reality, there's so much going on in the vessels, right? And so you have ways in which the vessels can be damaged. So if we want to keep the, the heart health, the cardiovascular system healthy, we want to avoid damage to that inner layer of our vessels from head to toe. We want to keep the blood flowing. We want to keep that inner layer, that endothelium healthy. And we also want to look at um, the viscosity of the blood itself. So how thick it is, right? And when it comes to fat, there's varying ways the healthiest can affect all of the above. So uh, if we look at viscosity, this is how thick the blood is versus how thin it is. So you had on previous podcasts, you talked about that a little bit. So if we're eating fatty foods, then that is going to affect the viscosity of our blood. And so if our blood is kind of thicker, that's going to drive up things like our blood pressure. 
And so, so that would be one particular way. If we have air eating fatty foods, we actually get to damage the, the layer of a blood vessel, the endothelium. It's pretty, that endothelium is pretty important. It does things like secrete nitric oxide, which is an antioxidant. It, it helps with vascular tone and that too would affect blood pressure, we'd say. So when we're eating these fatty foods, and particularly saturated fats, it's going to affect this endothelium. And another thing too is when we go back to, say, diabetes, when we have chronically high glucose, which is happening because we have insulin resistance, which is then in turn due to the fatty foods that we're eating and we have these lipid globules backing up in the cell, which is preventing insulin from allowing glucose to go in. All that, that cycle there, that is also going to affect the um, function and the integrity of our blood vessels. Um, so that chronically high glucose due to insulin resistance, due to fat consumption, um, is going to kind of come full circle there and affect um, a health, healthy blood vessels. So it's a number of different things that fat is doing from just sludging up what's going through mm -hmm. the vessel to actually directly injuring the vessel yeah. wall and causing it to not be able to produce the factors it needs yeah. to allow the wall to be healthy and move yeah. like it should. And, and you said, especially saturated yeah. fat. Does that mean unsaturated fat still does? That? So it's, I would say it probably does that to a lesser degree. I think that um, you have saturated fats, which basically it is, it, it's very inflammatory. So this is how this saturated fat is going to affect cholesterol levels and cholesterol builds up in the blood vessels and um, that increases your risk for cardiac event, et cetera. Um, but the saturated fat definitely does that. That's going to be things like your meat, dairy, coke, and even in the plant-based world, things like coconut oil and palm oil, all of those things are very inflammatory. Um, I think what you're seeing is the unsaturated fat is doing it to a much lesser degree. And uh, you hear about things like your essential fatty acids, like your walnuts and your flax seeds, chia seeds. Um, and those itself are, are very healthy. You may have heard there's a ratio that you want to try to maintain um, your omega-6 to omega-3, roughly four to one or so, something like that. And what you'll hear is you want to consume more omega-3s, but what you don't hear so much about is decreasing your omega-6s, if that makes sense. And so that's yeah. the, the part that's kind of inflammatory. Um, yeah. And do those right along with the saturated fat? Um, what do you mean by right along? I mean, will you find those omega-6s in the same foods that saturated food fats mm -hmm. are found in? Yeah. Okay. So if someone is trying to minimize the saturated fat, they're automatically going to be reducing their omega-6s yeah. and hopefully be in a better yeah. ratio. How do you actually, does anyone actually do that ratio? I don't, and think, I don't know. Oh, <laughs> how many? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I've seen it in labs before. I've questioned it. Okay. Uh, I'm not totally convinced uh, that there, how do you measure that? What does it mean? What does it actually entail? How does that actually benefit us in the end? Right. And um, I actually right. went back and forth and email conversation with Jeff Novick, a dietitian. Um, and uh, there, it's a really controversial, what, very talked about 
topic because you'll get even people in the plant-based world that are um, saying you need to supplement with omega-3 and your DHAs and things like that. And it was just a conversation that we had. Is that necessary? Is it really going to make a difference? And I think we honestly landed on that supplementation wasn't really necessary, that so long as you really do, you're thoughtful about your consumption of your walnuts, flax seeds, and chia seeds, you're fine. (laughs) So, yeah. Okay. This brings up an interesting um, dilemma is too strong Mm -hmm. of a word, but for somebody that has heart disease Mm -hmm. already, and then we want to make sure that if I have heart disease, I want to make sure I'm getting Mm -hmm. enough omegas through things like flax seeds right. and walnuts and so forth. But I may have also heard that, hey, don't eat right. so many nuts or don't right. eat any nuts. So what do so, I do? So, yeah. So first and foremost, let's back the camera up, right? Let's do the 50,000 foot view because let's just assume a fictional situation where you're just eating all the walnuts and flax seeds one could possibly take, but you're eating a really crappy diet, right? You're eating a high saturated fat, high processed food diet those nuts aren't going to help you, right, at all. It's not going to do any benefit. But let's say someone's eating a very strong plant-forward diet that's low in saturated fats, high in nutrient density, high in fiber, then that should take care of itself. Now you are doing everything you can to um, reduce the atherosclerotic plaque in your, your vessels, which has been shown to be reversed. Your body will heal itself if given the platform to do so. Um, you reduce your blood pressure and then you just stay on top of it. So from there, then we're not talking about a pound of walnuts. We're talking about a handful of walnuts and a tablespoon of flax seeds. So not an issue. I paid attention to Dr. Esselstyn and why he talks about um, no, he's a big proponent of no nuts, right? Because he's dealing with really cardiac catastrophes, if you will. Sick yeah, people. really sick people, yeah. not your average person. And I believe I read once that the reason why he says none, no, nil, is because what happens is as soon as he says something like you can have flax seeds or you can have walnuts, they're just going to make everything out of walnuts and flax seeds. Here comes walnut yeah. butter. It's not the same, right? So there's a difference between a tablespoon of flaxseed on your cereal and a handful of walnuts than starting to eat walnut burgers (laughs) every day, right? The importance is we back the camera up and we just eat this plant-forward diet every day, um, day in and day out. So if someone has Mm -hmm. heart disease and they're on this diet that could can reverse heart disease, which is whole food, plant-based, very mm-hmm. low saturated fat, then the question of omega-3 to 6 ratio isn't really something to get lost in because it's it's right. taken care of, especially if we're just eating a modest palm full of walnuts and a tablespoon Correct. of flaxseed. So, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's good. And then going back to what we were talking about, although this is yeah. very interesting too, um, you mentioned... Fat and cholesterol. How are those two things tied together? Absolutely. So when we eat the saturated fat, it actually starts to deposit in our bloodstream, on our vessels. So we eat this fat and it starts off this cascade of steps where you have 
cholesterol embedding into the wall of your vessels. And it kind of just goes from there. So eventually you get to a point where you have these things called macrophages and they're eating up the LDL and then they turn into these things called foam cells. And um, at some point you're going to get a little cap over this. Your body's like, I'm done. <laughs> I just can't do this anymore. So I'm just going to cover this up. And there's two kinds. Uh, there is this thin, unstable kind of cap. And then there's this thicker, stable kind of covering. And it's actually the thin, unstable kind of cap that can be very dangerous and, and be more likely to lead to an event because just the sheer flow of blood going through can actually peel that cap off. And then what happens is, is you have a collagen underneath there and it's clotting. And so that's when you're going to have a clot in that area. And that's when you're going to have, if it's in your brain, you're going to have a stroke. If it's in your heart, you're going to have a heart attack and anywhere else in your body. So that can happen. Uh, and then with the stable plaque, that one where that's kind of what you see when it's just grown over time, that's, that's happening. And eventually we went going back to the beginning when we talked about to keep the blood flowing. Now you're going to start to have some lesser blood flow through the vessels because that stable plaque is just starting to impede the lumen. It's, it's taking, taking up space. space. Yeah. So now your blood flow is going to struggle. Your heart has to work a little bit faster. You're going to have some higher blood pressure and it just goes on from there. Okay. So, Speaking of sludge and the fat directly depositing into the vessel walls, what about things like refined fats? And when I say that, I mean mm -hmm. oil. What's your take on oil and its health benefits versus health sure. risks? So um, tons of different oils out there. Um, the thing that's pretty cons across the board that's consistent is it's 100% fat. So all of it is 100% fat. And how we break it down is we're going to look at the percentage of fat that's saturated and the percentage of fat that is unsaturated. And as we talked about, the more saturated fat in these oils, the more inflammatory and everything that goes along with that. But the thing is, is even with the oils that are un highly unsaturated, like our beloved olive oil, it's still fat. It's still fat calories and it's calorie for calorie. It is very potent, if you will, in terms of it's not going to help us lose weight. Okay. So this idea of a little bit of olive oil in the pan to keep things from sticking in the, in the context of a plant forward diet, probably not an issue, but if we're intentionally drizzling, say olive oil on our pasta, because we think it's helpful, there's a lot of literature and, and um, evidence that shows that's not the case because it's 120 calories per tablespoon with zero fiber. We're not, our body's not going to notice it. Our body's not going to step up and be like, you've had too much calories. You're full now. <laughs> We're just going to keep on shoveling that in. And that's where the, it's yeah, stealthy. it is stealthy. That's a good way to put it. We just don't have, our body doesn't have the governor to tell us we're full with any amount of oil, any type of oil, including those that are, say, have a lot of unsaturated components to it. So that lends itself to, say, gaining weight and, say, obesity, and you have all of the cardiac risk that comes with that. So 
It is a very highly concentrated oil is a very concentrated source of calories, very all all fat, and um, the the recommendation is less is more. There's no issue if you want to avoid it, um, and you want to do no oil dressings and water saute and things like that. I can say as a dietitian, when I talk to people about options, we always start with adding in. But if they're just really motivated and they want to take something out. I always start with saying, how can we get out the oil? What can we do to decrease the oil? It matters and it makes a huge difference very quickly from a weight loss standpoint. So, and then everything else falls in line. As soon as you start to lose weight, your glucose gets better, your blood pressure gets better, all of that gets better. You start to lose weight. Um, I remember talking with someone once that was having trouble mm -hmm. losing weight. And eventually in the conversation, it came out that she was taking shots of oil, mm -hmm. olive oil. Yes. <laughs> multiple times a day because she, she was told it was very healthy. And, and that is a big difference that is intentionally adding it in because we think it's healthy. Then the next level is not avoiding it because it's naturally in the food we eat when we eat out. It's naturally in dressings that we eat. If you buy them from the store, it's naturally included in sometimes like pasta sauce and hummus and, and things like that. And so things that we might not even, things that we think are benign and not really affecting our health negatively. And so once you start to, the next level is pay attention and you're like, okay, I'm going to buy this pasta sauce because it has no oil. And I'm going to buy this hummus because it has no oil or make your own. Um, and I'm going to make my own dressing. I mean, you think about that. That's 120 calories in a tablespoon. If you replace your dressing, let's say you're someone who eats salads fairly regularly. Let's just go ahead and be really bold and say you eat a salad once a day. Let's just say. Your face is yeah. telling me, for those who can't see it, <laughs> that maybe not every single person on the planet eats a right, salad every exactly. day. But let's okay. just say whether it's a salad or pasta or something like that. And let's just say you replaced it with what oil was in there with something that with no oil, you could easily cut 120 to 300 some calories a day, a day, easily. And that's a very easy swap, right? And that's not, that's really not a big deal. So um, even for most people, um, just making a small swap from one product to the next, or if they, I would say making your own dressings is a, a bigger deal, but once people get used to how the template works, it's pretty easy. Um, it doesn't take very long and they last a week in the fridge and they're fresh and delicious, but you take, let's just say 200 calories a day, every day, you're going to lose weight just by doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Every day, mm -hmm. every week. Over the if months. you think of that calorie density chart that has goes around in the plant-based world where you have vegetables at 100 calories per pound on one end, and then on the other end, you have olive, any oil, I should say, at 4,000 calories per pound. And no, we're not eating a pound of anything, but it's a constant. That literally means that you could eat a pound of Brussels sprouts and eat 120, 100 calories. And you could eat a tablespoon of oil and that's 120 calories. So you can see it's a lot easier to eat. And after olive oil, or I keep saying olive oil, I don't want to 
harsh on olive oil. It's all <laughs> oils. After oil, right, at 5,000 calories per pound, right under that is butter and then nuts, right? And those are two, 3,000 calories per pound. It's a, it's a calorie density thing when it comes to weight. It's just very, very potent calories. All right, so to recap what we've been talking about in the context of someone that has heart disease or doesn't mm -hmm. want to get it, the key is going to be really minimizing saturated fat, but also all fat, and particularly trying to remove any refined fat if they're so motivated to do that so that the vessel walls don't get bombarded and damaged and they can still function as they're supposed to to keep our blood pressure down and not lead to a clot that produces a stroke or heart attack. Yeah, we, we need some fat. We just want to make sure that the source is appropriate. And so when we're keeping in things like those walnuts and flax seeds, um, some nuts, again, handful, not overdoing that. And then, you know, your avocados, etc. This isn't a no-fat lifestyle. This is a low-fat lifestyle. That's right, folks. We just went from outer space to inner space and back to the kitchen. And there's so much more good stuff to come in the next half of this conversation. So I hope you join us again to dive into the what, why, and how of food and heart disease and some very helpful analogies as well. To find Nutritionist Heather Borders, check out the show notes for a link or go to kylonutrition.com. That's K-A-I-L-O nutrition.com. And if you're finding this helpful, please tell and encourage at least one other person to subscribe to this podcast. Remember, the way you live can save your life. <laughs>